This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, so amazing to see you. I was so happy I got to spend some time with you recently at Consensus. I got so many nice comments from people on the ground in Austin, Texas, who had listened to our show. And so many of them said, oh, you make my job easier because I get to explain it to my boss or you help frame it for me, or you're helping to understand why this is such a big moment and why I have to commit to Web3 as a career. I don't know if you got that. I was just really like enthused to meet so many great listeners to the show. So tell me about if you had any of those experiences. And secondly, what were your impressions of Consensus this year? First, major flowers to you and the entire Coindesk team on an amazing Consensus event. I you know attended last year and this year. It's only two of the couple of years I've been doing it and was impressed last year, but was incredibly impressed this year. I thought that the Stage X programming was excellent, just incredible brand leaders. I mean, you had everyone from the chief digital officer from St. Jude to Kate Brady from PepsiCo, Julie Garneau from AB, Devin Nagy from Diageo, Nelly from LVMH, just incredible group of brand marketers and many Vayner clients. So we love to see that speaking and attending. So super, super well done. In terms of Gen C community, I think we didn't call them that. It was really nice to meet people in real life who tune into this show and you know get something out of it. It makes me even more excited to continue bringing on great guests. And I think it also reinforced the demand that we see from marketers and brand builders in the space to learn more. My belief is that you know in 2021, even last year, there's a lot of rush to act. And I think there are a lot of quiet strategists sort of playing now people who don't want to get up on stage and don't want to make a press announcement, but are actually working on their Web3 strategy internally at their company, educating their organization and getting ready for this sort of next revolution of how people use the internet. And I love chatting to those people as well who are in it, but not beating their chests. And you know, I can say from my brand partners who attended, they all had an amazing time. And it was great for them to hear both from enterprise leaders and blockchain and crypto leaders, because indisputably, Coindesk is very centered on the crypto and Web3 native community, the builders, the developers, the companies, and the community who's all about that. So I thought it was a really nice merging of those two things. So A+. Well, thank you. And, you know, there is about 200 people who work on this behind the scenes and you have VCon coming up, so you know how difficult this stuff is. So really appreciate that. I do think that the name of this show is Gen C, but it stands for Generation Crypto. And I think we saw that on display. Generation Crypto does look at the world a little bit differently. And I think the really exciting thing is that we've seen that expansion happening of people who really just get excited to build in the space, to participate, to support. And Generation Crypto is on full display at Consensus. And it's a really wide, wide mix, right? You have people who are you know, this is their first career coming out of college. I mean, this ours is a B2B show, right? So we have people who are coming because they want to learn, they want to network, they want to collaborate, they want to build, they want to get hired, all of those things. So you have folks who are 23, first job out of college, they get to come to consensus. And then they're, you know, mixing with the olds like me who are there saying, hey, we've had careers and we're as excited as you are to make this happen. We're in different places. And I think that's something that is really exciting to me. I think the Stage X, which was our brand and creator summit, 
By the time this is out, all of those videos are free and up on consensus.coindesk.com, so anyone can go watch it. But the StageX programming, which, you know, we were all involved with was, yeah, like, you know, having Eric Calderon from Artblocks up there talking about why creator royalties matter to having Mark Matu from Salesforce and talking about we still have yet to see the truly breakout native Web3 app. And then all of the folks that you mentioned, there is so much intelligence there. And I think that the vibe of just being together, being able to discuss it is what makes the space so magical because none of us actually have it figured out. We're all experimenting. And big shout out to the Vayner team because you guys are working with so many of the top brands and helping them figure out a strategy. And that shows because, you know, then you get Julie Garneau up there, who's an amazing thought leader and creative thinker and businesswoman who at Anheuser-Busch is trying to figure out what does it mean for a beer brand? Now, I will say you and I were both at a dinner that we helped to organize and Kate Brady from Pepsi, who you mentioned, shocked me when we were having that conversation where she says, hey, Pepsi products are seen by basically 98% of the world. That stat has stayed with me from the moment she uttered it. And so we've talked a lot about the idea of community can be 3,000 and 5,000 and 10,000. What happens when community is 9 billion is like a very different way to think of Web3. Welcome to my life, Sam. (laughs) This is Avery's life, which is, hey, how can I get just a smidgen of those 98% (laughs) of the world using our products? All right. So yeah, great stuff. Thank you for speaking and sharing your knowledge. You're always such a great friend to us in that. So really appreciate it. Something else happened this week, which I thought was amazing. Any of us who watched the first game, the Lakers and the Golden State Warriors saw, at least in the lead up, LeBron James coming in wearing artifact sneakers. So the timeline blew up when this happened. I don't know if you were paying attention. What does this mean when LeBron himself is wearing an NFT on his feet? Yeah, so there were a couple of things similar to that this week that I think are the subtle flexes that if you know, you knows. The LeBron wearing the artifact sneakers, which if you're just a normal person, he just looks like he's wearing dope kicks, right? And the Alexis Ohanian going to the Met Gala, you know, he was wearing the Gucci Coda pin from the other side game from Yuga. Similar thing, like anybody else would just think it's a little detail, but if you know, you know. Then we see, you know, Pharrell posting about his doodle that he made in this doodle studio wearing these digital Adidas sneakers. I think all of these three things are perfect examples of subtle cultural moments that shows if you know, you know, it's a cool thing. It's the same as like, we're talking about the puzzle bag with Ian, right? Like the Loewe puzzle bag. Oh, you know, you know, that kind of thing. If you don't know, you just think it's a normal sort of accessory or item. And I think that's the sort of cultural building that we're seeing right now with Web3 subtly infiltrating a bigger group at some of the biggest stages in the world, right? Like LeBron before a big game, Alexis at the Met Gala, Pharrell on his Instagram and social handles. It isn't shoving it in people's faces. It's a subtle thing. And I actually think it's a much more tasteful way to integrate Web3 culture further into the mainstream in a desirable way. Yeah, I mean, LeBron knows what he's doing when he wears sneakers, right? When that photo gets taken and shows up everywhere, And for anyone who hasn't paid a lot of attention to the Artifact brand, Digital Studio started in the beginning of 2020, gets acquired 18 months after by Nike for an undisclosed sum. And now Nike is releasing a whole slew of Air Force Ones that are kind of co-branded Artifact and Nike, and they just happen to show up on the most famous basketball player in the world's feet. To your point, it's a moment that shifts people. Like we did see those sneakers, at least on OpenSea, you know, the ability to get those tokens that get you those sneakers started to fly. So the insider group knew and they knew, hey, here's an opportunity for me to either create value or status. But for the rest of the world, 
like when was the last time they saw that logo on a Nike sneaker, right? One side says Nike, one's artifact. It creates curiosity. That curiosity is something that helps to bring more and more people in. They wonder what's going on. Oh, these kids are actually cool. They're not just computer nerds and Bitcoin fanatics. And I think that is a shift, which is amazing. It's a shift away from marketing them as NFTs to marketing them as cool, desirable objects, which I think is the right shift. Yes, yes. At our dinner, we saw two Tiffany CryptoPunk necklaces. Unfortunately, neither was worn by Avery, but yet. (laughs) Neither was worn by Avery at the moment. But if you subtly were able to give Farouk a hug, you might have been able to steal it from him. I did notice that. (laughs) All right. Final thing before we get to our amazing guest is another cultural institution coming into the NFT ecosystem. And this one, one of the biggest that exists, the Vatican. So I was reading this article yesterday. The Vatican is using NFT technology both to digitize its library and its asset collection, but also for folks who do everything from share on social to help support financially. They're utilizing an NFT reward system for those who are supporting the Vatican itself. So do we think that the Pope has a CryptoPunk? I don't know about that, but I'm not shocked to hear this as a person who grew up in going to Catholic school themselves. Wherever there's a financial opportunity, the Roman Catholic Church seems to find a way there. So um, I'm not shocked they're digitizing these assets. And in all reality, I think it's smart. I think the Catholic Church has a number of potentially ill-begotten artifacts that they are in possession of. And it makes sense for them to consider digitizing this collection, creating moments of traceability. I think that's something that, you know, over the centuries has long been points of contention where certain items came from, who's owned them, provenance, things like that. So it's interesting to see a cultural and of course, religious institution playing this in a big way. We haven't seen a lot of religion go in this direction, but it absolutely makes sense. So I expect to see much more of it in the coming years as this enters more and more mainstream consciousness and, you know, user adoption continues to grow. Some people call crypto a religion, (laughs) (laughs) but I think you're right. I also think that when you look at the macro, look at Trump cards, look at the Vatican, everyone who involves themselves with these assets is opening a wallet. So if we just look at it, instead of looking at our politics, instead of looking at our religious beliefs, but just that it's another way for people to get a little bit of a taste of what it means to be in a digital asset ecosystem where they can also claim objects, trade objects, gift objects, all of that. I do think that it is an opportunity for us to look at this as a bigger thing. It's why I don't love when we tear down others, right? Like I know we had a conversation about Porsche and Porsche's experience with NFTs and for good or bad, it was still an audience that may not be as native coming into the space. And maybe we need to be more supportive of that because it still widens out the community in the long run. I'm interested to see what the Vatican is doing. I really do hope that the Pope has a wallet that we can check at some point and see that he's got some interesting assets in there. But in the end, I think it was a sort of great little signal that there's still a lot of room to go in our audience. Absolutely. All right. With that, after the break, we're going to hear from Ivan Soto Wright. Ivan is the CEO and founder of MoonPay. MoonPay is one of the few companies that's been around long enough to help onboard a lot of folks and have figured out a lot of the hard problems around the financialization of both NFTs and how to get more crypto at your wallet. We will discuss how hard it was to do that in the beginning because it was quite hard. And they're one of the folks doing the work to bring more and more people into crypto by making it much easier to acquire crypto assets, NFTs, and also are trying to be, I think, the concierge service, almost the way that Amazon really focused very early on a customer service. That's their real focus is how do we make it easier for everybody? So after the break, Ivan Soto Wright, and we'll be right back. 
Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash gen C. All right, we are here with Ivan Soto Wright, CEO of MoonPay. Very excited to have this conversation. It's been a long time coming. Ivan, you know, you guys just celebrated your fourth year of MoonPay. Can you give us the TLDR on what MoonPay is now, but also what it was when you started it and like what that evolution has looked like to get to this moment? Sam, Avery, great to be here. Thanks for having me on the pod. Crazy to reflect, four years. Yeah, four years is a long time. When we started the business, we started with trying to solve a very simple problem which was the idea of a wallet, I think is the foundational idea of crypto, right? It's the building block in which all value will ultimately move between these different wallets. And so when I was getting started in my crypto journey, I was just excited about this idea that this wallet, you can receive value from anyone anywhere in the world. You have a public wallet address and you have a private key that underpins that public wallet address. But if you wanted to put value into that wallet, it was kind of complicated. You had to go to an exchange, you had to buy crypto, move it into your wallet. And so I said, how do we simplify that journey? How do we go into a wallet and make it easy for you to top up directly? So that's where MoonPay started. We built the top up button, the buy button for a wallet. And we actually built our own wallet from scratch. It was me and my co-founder, Victor, at the time. This would have been 2018 when we were starting to play around in the space. And then fast forward, we saw this big opportunity where we didn't necessarily have to own the wallet ourselves but we could power the button for others. And so it was by chance, but we were connected to Bitcoin.com, which was one of the top SEO sites. If you search by Bitcoin, Bitcoin.com is one of the very first things that comes up. And we said, how can we make that journey simpler for people at Bitcoin.com? And ultimately, that was the birth of MoonPay. We built the simple buy button on Bitcoin.com. And then looking at today, a couple of years out, it's been a crazy journey. And I think for us, we just see there's a huge, immense potential of transforming the idea of digital ownership with these wallets. And so, you know, for us at MoonPay, we want to be a foundational Web3 infrastructure business, you know, and really around that, you know, we want to solve making it easy from anyone anywhere in the world to access the space, to get started on their journey. And really, I break that down into a couple components. The first component's really being payments. So best in class on and off ramps across every single geography with the very best conversion, right? So wherever you are in the world, being able to use your debit card, your credit card, your local bank payment method, making it easy for you to go in and to go out of this crypto ecosystem. Also for you know the new forms of content, which we're calling NFTs, making it easy for people to buy and sell, move into NFTs. And so we work with amazing companies like OpenSea. And then you know from there, how do we make it easy to enable some of the biggest brands in the world to bring their IP their metadata ultimately that underpins that IP into new digital content. And you know, we've really see ourselves as an end-to-end infrastructure business. We can go zero to one with any company around how they can get started in this space. So around how they can create their content, how they can manage that content, how people can access that content, how people can buy, sell, and move and exchange value of this content. Just one follow-up, I mean, we just had consensus and I was talking to someone after one of our sessions. And I was talking about 
2014, we were like mining Bitcoin out of my agency office. And he said, oh, well, you guys must have killed it. And I said, you know, it was so hard to get Bitcoin into a wallet. The technical knowledge that you needed to have in 2014 in order to get it was really a big challenge. Like you had to be, in essence, like a programmer or a dev or someone who really wanted to get into the weeds. Like, can you just describe the difficulty of being early into crypto and that being such a big pain point? Because a lot of people were excited about crypto, but a lot of people didn't want to go through the education process of how to actually get some. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people today is the biggest barrier to adoption is still, even today, user experience. And I remember when I first started in the space, you had to be a bit of a nerd. You had to basically know how to use the terminal. And there weren't GUIs. There were no graphical user interfaces to interact with these different wallets. So it was really complicated. And so every single time I look at the space, I'm always thinking, how do we make things simpler? Ultimately, I think infrastructure can play a huge role, making sure you can take all these different components and then build really beautiful UI, really build beautiful user experiences. You know, you think about the computing revolution, you think about what Apple did for the space. There was already the invention of a computer, but it was really Apple that said, all right, how do we make this not just something where we're going to talk about RAM and gigahertz and all the technical specifications. Let's talk about magical computers and what they're going to be able to do for you. Amazing. The magical computers and what they can do for you, how the world has changed since then. Now it's magical internet money. <laughs> exactly. It is magical internet money. So Ivan, how did you get into this space as you call it? What's your background? What kind of got you here today? And then how would you define the space? How would you define the industry that we're in right now? Yeah. So for me, I've always been a bit of a nerd on the technical side, you know, in terms of just playing around with new technology. Ever since I was a kid, I was obsessed with playing video games, obsessed with you know, being on my computer. And so for me, I think it was a natural thing that I'd kind of find out about crypto early, but it was actually through, I was in college and one of my friends was writing his thesis on Bitcoin. And that was when I first learned about Bitcoin. I read the white paper. This is 2012 when I started to really go into the weeds of crypto. But ultimately, I didn't do anything with it at first. I ended up starting my career working in traditional finance. So I actually had a fork in the road of my life where I was making money doing some DJing on the side in college. It was either, you know, start a DJ career or go work in traditional finance. And I had an opportunity. I worked for this incredible entrepreneur, this guy named Robert Gardner, who had set up a business in London called Reddington, advising big pension funds, insurance companies. And it was an incredible place for me to start my career. I got to get a really good sense of technical finance, how to hedge out interest rates and inflation risk, which are the biggest things that basically impact the liability side of the balance sheet for big pension funds. And so we'd hedge those risks and then help them focus on their portfolio construction. And you know, while I was there, I got a really good picture, bird's eye view of how all these different asset classes work. You know, how do equities work? How do fixed income work? How does all these different financial instruments, like who are the players, right? Who are the managers that actually manage these different asset classes? And so I got to be in a really interesting position where speaking to these big pension funds, they're essentially the whales of our financial ecosystem. You know, how can they best manage their portfolios? And so when I got to think about crypto, I kind of looked at it from that lens and I said, this is like a new asset class that's being created, but it's a permissionless asset class. It's you know native to the internet. And so for me, I was always just like deeply fascinated with the space. And so I was always keeping you know tabs on kind of the new wallets, the new exchanges, the new apps that were coming out in the crypto space. And so in 2015, I left to start my first business. I ended up starting a fintech that wasn't focused on crypto. First, it was trying to make it easy for people to save and invest. I think as a first-time entrepreneur, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs have stars in their eyes. I wanted to build a really amazing retail customer-facing app where you'd connect your bank account. We would magically 
figure out what is the right amount for you to save. And we would sweep it into a savings account and help you invest. Really cool idea, but very difficult business to make money and to scale. So I went through the school of hard knocks as an entrepreneur. Ultimately, we managed to sell the business to a company called Plum in London. They're one of the leaders in automated savings and investment. And so 2018, I was back at the drawing board. And at that point, I had just gone through the cycle of 2017 and seeing Bitcoin rally. It was one of the large rallies of Bitcoin. I remember Bitcoin hitting its all-time market high at that point, around 20,000. And it was just really difficult to ignore what was going on in the space. I was spending all my free time just kind of looking, playing with all the different tools that were out there. And my co-founder, Victor, and I started coming up with the idea to build a wallet. And that's ultimately what led to what I mentioned before, which was, all right, we need to make it easier for people to top up these wallets. And then let's make it easier rather than going direct to the consumer. Let's go to these places where people already are to make it easier for them to start their journey and top up their wallets on places like Bitcoin.com. All right, two questions. One is when you were DJing, what was the song you would play that you knew the crowd would get hype about? Yeah, well, I was really into Deep House. So was I. I don't know if you know this guy named Luciano, but what I liked about his music was he used natural instruments to create his sounds. I like the tropical kind of vibe, like, you know, the nature kind of vibe into the music. So it was fun. I remember in Washington, D.C., we had a townhouse. And so we would get so many complaints from our neighbors. That was my training ground. It was the best place to learn how to DJ. Amazing. We'll put Luciano in the show notes. Your previous business, which was all focused on saving better, it sounds like the top-up strategy is such a great savings tool, right? You're already spending a little bit, let's top it up. And therefore, we continually get more. And if you were doing that from when it sounds like you guys were starting on Bitcoin.com, people would have been able to accrue a fair amount of value. So that strategy makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think my general philosophy, right, in terms of what gets me excited around working in the space around finance, right, and fintech, I just love this idea that people can make it easier for them to participate in value creation. Most Americans actually have a negative savings rate. So the idea that we can make it easier for people to put their money to work has been something that's always been super compelling to me. And that's one of the beautiful things I think about crypto is it really just lowers the barrier to people moving to just becoming a consumer to actually becoming an owner. And so I think for me, it's really when I think about all this stuff, it's how do we democratize ownership? How do we get everyone you know, being able to participate in the rewards of ownership. Yeah. And when you talk about democratizing, you know, I was recently reading up a little bit more on the services and tooling that MoonPay provides. And probably unsurprisingly to many, you all have a vast international audience and regulation varies quite a bit market by market. Can you talk about how that democratization is happening across the globe for MoonPay? Yeah. So we're in 160 countries as a business. And so you know, our ambition is to localize the MoonPay experience for every single geography, every single payment method. And that's going to be a monstrous journey for us. Like every single country, there's a ton of work to basically plug into the local banking rails or the local payment methods that are popular. When we started the business, I think starting with debit and credit cards was an incredible place to start because it gave us that vast reach, that vast distribution through the Visa and MasterCard networks, right? And so there's so many people that already have a Visa and MasterCard in their pocket, all of a sudden they're able to use our service, which was a great place for us to start. And then, you know, obviously to do all the different local payment methods, there's always a balance to being able to build the stack yourself in-house versus finding partners for you to offer that service in those particular markets. And so it's a balance, right? In some cases, we'll build the stack zero to one in-house, or we'll find a local partner to be able to you know, perform that regulated activity or that regulated function to be able to turn on that payment method in a particular geography. But you know, our ambition is to make sure that the service is always 
globally regulatory compliant across every single region in which we operate. And so it's interesting because every single geography is taking a different approach to how they want to regulate crypto ultimately, how they want to tax crypto ultimately. So it's just a lot of work to just continue to stay on top of that. And we've got an incredible legal and regulatory team that's on top of it. Actually, my lawyer was just telling me that she was in London and was topping up on MoonPay and it was very easy there. She was comparing the experience like country by country, which I thought was super interesting. Beloved by lawyers all around the world. <laughs> so Ivan, I want to get back to a moment that I think really helped put MoonPay on the map from a consumer perspective. So MoonPay got a lot of attention for being a concierge to celebrities and others and helping them navigate the new world of Web3 in sort of the 2021 era. I remember seeing this on Jimmy Fallon. Can you tell us a little bit about that celebrity strategy and how that came to be, Ivan? Yeah, when I look into how do you grow a business, it all comes down to distribution, right? What are different points of distribution? When we started with Visa and MasterCard, billions of people on the Visa and MasterCard networks. And so I saw an opportunity to do some things that didn't scale around how do we educate people to come into the space for the first time? You know, there's obviously a lot of complexity around being able to download a wallet, set up a wallet with its private key, you know, writing down that seed phrase, then going and being able to make a purchase of your first digital asset. I thought it was very important not just to talk about this stuff, but to actually go and do it. And so for us, you know, it was very important that we could help creators, right? And I see creators as they have incredible IP that ultimately I think will follow into this new file format that we're calling NFTs or these new forms of digital content. Ultimately, they will create this new digital content. But for them to understand that, first, they need to understand how to use the basic infrastructure full stop. And so for us, that was really the intention behind it. And, you know, in most cases, if you wanted to buy a board ape, they were quite expensive at the time. In most cases, you couldn't use your debit and credit card. It was too expensive to purchase a board ape. So we said, all right, we will make this easier. Just like you would work with a private bank, you receive an invoice, you pay that invoice with a bank transfer, and then we transfer over that ape to you. And so we said, let's try to put it in as many hands as possible. And ultimately, we see the concierge as our ultimate level of customer service inside of MoonPay. So if you think of American Express, you know, if you hold the black card or you hold the platinum card, you have all these benefits. You have, you know, essentially you can call up American Express at any point and get an incredible experience. You know, we wanted to be able to offer that type of experience, doing things that don't scale to a top proportion of customers. But ultimately, our ambition is to have amazing customer experience for anyone that works with MoonPay. Ivan, I keep thinking that there's like a competition between you guys and Polygon and who has the best business development team. Because I don't think there's like a brand launch that I see that doesn't have MoonPay on it. I'm wearing an Allo hat right now. I know you guys were involved with Allo, but you've also been involved with GQ and Time and as well as like OpenSea and Magic Eden on the Web3 side. You guys seem to be everywhere. Can you just like talk about what was that opportunity that you saw was like a vacuum that you were able to fill that allowed Web2 and Web3 brands to sort of trust in MoonPay being the rails that got money into the system? Yeah. So I think our roots have always been focusing on crypto native businesses. Those are the businesses which we wouldn't be around as a business today if it wasn't for those crypto native businesses. So that will always be an incredibly important client demographic that we're going to continue to make sure that we're working with the very best in the crypto industry. But when we think about the crypto industry, like we're still very small in terms of the proportion of the world's population. And so the way that we're going to onboard more people into the space, again, comes back to distribution. Who are the biggest brands that people know and love every single day? And I think they're going to take their IP and they're going to take that content and they're going to bring it into the space. And so, you know, really, we saw that MoonPay was like almost too far down the funnel in terms of the payments infrastructure component, right? Because 
first you have to go and create the content, right? And ultimately, how are you going to create the content? You're going to need to be able to manage and launch smart contracts. And so we built a business called Hypermet, which I feel is something that was really needed for these brands to bridge the gap of how do they take that content? How do they make it easy to bring that content into the space? And so that's ultimately where it made sense for us to start to partner in the same way that we looked at where the biggest distribution points in crypto. Let's work with the biggest brands in the Web2 space. And so we've done a lot of stuff across a whole range of different industries. I think it's a really exciting time for the space because we're still defining the different types of digital content and the different types of experiences that the digital content is going to provide. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot, and I refer to NFTs as a new file format, but you know, what I've also done recently is I also refer to them as cookies. Except you know, if you think about cookies today, right, when you go to a website, you see, you know, click accept cookies for a better experience on that website. And those cookies are secretly stored in your computer and you might not ever think about them ever again. If you go onto your computer and your settings, you probably find a bunch of different cookies you had no idea that were on your laptop or on your device. But, you know, the way I think about NFTs, they're like cookies that you decide to opt into because you want a better experience with a particular brand. And so it goes from it being kind of this passive thing that's collected behind the scenes to you actively participating because you want to have a better experience with that particular brand. There's a lot of examples where I think that brands, especially brands where you, know, you have something that's like limited in supply, where you have a significant amount of demand, that you can tailor that experience to people that hold these you know, digital tokens or these digital cookies. And so you could imagine, let's take an example of you know, Nike. The idea that they're now saying they have this massive CRM of people that already know Nike, that experience the Nike brand, they also have this audience of people that are digitally native, that are in the Web3 space, that they can now identify within the Nike ecosystem with a dot .swish ID, right? So they're saying, okay, there's a whole segment of people that are digitally native that want to start to engage with Nike. And with that dot .swish brand, my dot .swish ID, you can almost think of that as your cookie to a you know, set of experiences, whether it be new fashion-forward digital collectible sneakers that might be redeemable for physical or new experiences that you can have within the Nike flagship stores. You know, I think every brand can start to think in this way of how can you curate and contextualize your experience to your end customer, your end user. And these NFTs are a way to start to have different segments of your audience and turning those different segments of your audience into a genuine community that has a love for the different products and experiences that you can provide. Very well said. So Ivan, as part of that journey into starting to work with brands, you brought on Keith Grossman, who Sam and I know and love. Shout out to Keith and his sort of pioneering work both at Time and what he's doing with you at MoonPay Enterprise. And I think this is like sort of following a trend line that we've seen in a lot of crypto firms that have hired from Web2 Media and Big Tech to bring some of that experience in. What are your thoughts on how crypto brands, what you can learn from some of the sort of Web2 OGs and more traditional brand builders? I think the most important thing is we need to lose the jargon. We need to stop saying the word crypto. We need to stop saying the word NFT and just talk about, you know, you have physical things, you have digital things. And I think people that come from what we're calling Web2 or just you know, traditional brands that you know and love, they understand how to simplify the communication and the messaging. And I think that's super, super important. It's ultimately when this stuff works flawlessly behind the scenes, it's around, all right, I'm just going to have better experiences as a result of this new digital content that's being created. I think every brand, what you're seeing, every Fortune 500 company will be launching digital content and digital goods. It's a new medium for them. It's a new marketing channel for them. And so bringing in Keith was, for us, I think a game changer as a business. I've learned just an incredible amount working alongside him. 
he was one of the first people in my mind to really be a pioneer around how to leverage this technology in a way that was not complex, right? He went to Time and he said, all right, Time, a legacy brand that many people know and love. I remember reading Time for Kids when I was in the second grade. I remember every week we had to do like pop quizzes on Time, which is pretty funny. I think what Keith did is he took that brand and said, all right, well, how do we build a new experience for people that are fans of the Time brand? And so he created Time Pieces. You went and purchased a timepiece. And just like I use that cookie example, essentially it's the cookie you opt into for a better experience of time. And you can now log into Time and you receive all these benefits beyond just being a subscriber to Time Magazine. You get Time Magazine Plus, right? So you get access to events. I think someone got a meet and greet with Elon Musk as a result of getting a timepiece, which is pretty cool. That to me was someone that managed to take something that was highly complex and put it into action in a practical way. And I thought we would definitely see more brands want to learn from that type of expertise and who better than Keith to go teach them. And so over these next couple of years, our big focus will be how do we educate brands? How do we get them thinking about what is the content that they can ultimately create and be able to onboard and bringing them the best infrastructure around making that experience of going from zero to one as frictionless and as easy as possible. At Consensus, I ran a marketing panel where I said like Web3 native brands, it feels like their marketing strategy is just vibes. And I'm like, that doesn't build a business. So I do think that there's a lesson also, which is there's so many smart marketers that are looking for their next opportunity who get really inspired by the innovative and also get really inspired by the communal that Web3 allows for. And I think it was just a great move for you guys to trust Keith and also for, frankly, Keith to take a risk. He was at a pretty established career moment for himself. Being the president of time is not a job that sucks. And, you know, he jumped into something where a lot of people are probably like, I've never heard of that. And his goal is to make sure everyone's heard of that. And he's very good at that kind of thing. But it sounds like one of the lessons is to also both the way you talk and the way Keith talks is very much non-technical. It's very much about building brand, building community, building opportunity and creating richer experiences. And it seems like that's what you guys are focused on. I want to flip to you guys just dropped the MoonPay app. And the app itself seems to do two things. On the one hand, it is a wallet manager. So all of your different wallets across all the different ecosystems you can manage through the MoonPay app and then add value from topping up and all of that. And then secondly, would love for you to talk about the passport and what that's going to be that also lives within the app itself. Yeah. So most people didn't necessarily know that they were using MoonPay. And we had 50 million people sign up and use our service across all these different countries and all these different regions. And already in our customer support, one of the big questions we would get is like, when app? So we saw an opportunity to really take our widget experience and really build a much better mobile optimized experience. And I think for us, we're in this unique place because we are the partner to so many amazing wallets in the space. And I really think that we're going to be in a multi-wallet world in the same way that we're going to be in a multi-blockchain world, right? There's different benefits and reasons why people build on particular blockchains. I think the same goes for wallets, right? You're going to have a wallet maybe that's really geared towards your gaming experience. You might have a wallet that's really geared towards listening to digital music. You might have a wallet for you know, a whole range of these different types of content or a Bitcoin wallet or a different blockchain-specific wallet. And so I think we're going to end up with a lot of different wallets. And I see wallets almost like bank accounts. They're quite sticky once you set one up. And you know, most people have multiple bank accounts. And so when we thought about the MoonPay app experience, we said, okay, well, if you have these different wallets, you want to be able to see them in one place and you want to be able to make it really easy for you to top them up. 
And so that's really what the MinPay app is providing is a really slick, you know, most people that log in are pretty impressive. They've used MinPay before. They'll be like, whoa, whoa, I've used MinPay on Uniswap. I've used MinPay on OpenSea. I've used MinPay for all these different wallets to top up. And you can see them all in one place. For me, I was kind of surprised that no one had really done that before. And so I think we're in this unique position to make it easy for people to manage multiple wallets. When it comes to the passport, you know, I think one of the things is if we're going out and speaking to brands around how to build better digital experiences, right, with this new form of digital content that we're calling NFTs, we better be doing it ourselves. And so when I think about the MoonPay Passport, it's really taking all the lessons from all the work that we're doing with brands and applying that to our MoonPay customer audience, right? We can segment out our MoonPay customer audience. Right now, we have a number of customers that have gone through our full KYC experience. We have customers that are huge lovers of the brand that top up regularly, that use the platform and have five or six different wallets. We want those people to feel rewarded. We want them to be loyal and thank them and recognize them for using the platform. And so when we think about the Passport, it's really an opportunity to provide a better experience to our most loyal MinPay customers. And that better experience will be things like with the brands that we work with, giving them early access to the content that gets created. So let's say we do a partnership with Al Yoga. You know, we've worked with Al Yoga. You're rocking an aloe hat right now, I see. So I'm a huge fan of aloe. I never really knew too much about aloe. It's really been over the last year that I formed a love of the brand. And the first thing that we did with them was last year at Newark Fashion Week, we launched these digital certificates that were tied to high fashion items with aloe. And so if you went and purchased one of the Aspen collection items, you got this digital certificate, you could go into the aloe store, and now you can go do a cryotherapy session, you could go into the aloe wellness center. So it was a new unique experience as a result of a particular community within aloe buying these particular items. Recently, and this happened last week, so if you go into an aloe store, it's something next to the kiosk where it has an NFC chip and it says tap for mindfulness. And if you tap it, it actually opens up a page where you can see a mantra for every single day in the month of May. And you can now claim that mantra as an NFT into your wallet, which is pretty cool. So that's all using our infrastructure underneath the hood. I mentioned that because you can imagine we are going to do more activations with that in the future. We can provide our MoonPay passport holders that we know are KYC. We know they're real humans. We know they've transacted with us in the past access to those opportunities before other people, right? Because one of the biggest challenges that we have with brands that want to launch new content is how do you fight the spam? How do you fight the bots of people that are trying to go and claim all this different content? So I think we're in a really unique position to be able to really bridge that gap. And so the vision behind the Passport is early access to everything within the MoonPay ecosystem and also giving our existing customers the best possible experience at MoonPay. And bots don't do yoga. And bots don't do yoga. <laughs> Shout out to Angelique over at Alo, who's doing an amazing job over there. She's awesome. We're all big fans of hers. And you did mention when we were talking before we got on also about the gaming experience. I mean, we saw, what is it, two weeks ago, a Counter-Strike skin go for half a million dollars. So there is clear value, perceptible value in the gaming world. I'm personally very bullish on Web3 gaming being one of the sort of ways that we cross the border into like masses of millions, because I think people would love to have their Nike shoes or their aloe hat or their skin in any game they happen to play. Can you talk a little bit about how the app may evolve to help support all of the micro experiences that people can have in things like games and other sites? So going back to having multiple wallets, those wallets are going to hold different things inside of them, right? And so some of those things might be skins behind games, right? And so we're in this really unique position. I mean, a dream state for me would be I turn on my Xbox, I scan a QR code, and that QR code is a QR code powered by MoonPay. 
And I don't know if you've ever tried to sign up and pay for something on your Xbox, but it's really painful if you're doing it in front of your TV. You have to basically use your controller to navigate and put in every single letter of your email. And that could take like 10 minutes. Like imagine just scan a quick QR code. I've got all of your saved payment methods, right? So if you've used MoonPay before, you have all your saved payment methods, but also the wallets that you've connected that have skins inside. And so I can go into an experience like, you know, Counter-Strike or Halo. And immediately off the bat, I can import any of my skins, any of my content that I have, but also pay. If I want to pay for new skins, I could do that all in one place. And so that's kind of the future that we're hoping to build towards, right? I think, how do we provide this really slick, seamless experience for people to log in and be able to come with all their safe payment methods and all of their safe content? And you're in control of it. You own it. And you can go and have these unique experiences across all these different platforms on the web. I love your analogy about having multiple different bank accounts. I always say it's like an app. I think people, of course, are going to have multiple different wallets. And I'm sure you all saw this and it was a driving factor in the sort of consolidation that MoonPay has created with your app. Our audience is brand marketers. And many times when they're first hearing about Web3, it almost gets oversimplified. It's like, this is your wallet that you're going to use everywhere. And like, that's true. It's just like your credit card. You have one credit card, but then you actually also have five and you use them for different benefits and reasons. Or your app, like you have multiple apps. and I think we're also going to see large companies launch on their own private blockchains and you'll have wallets across those. So I love that you all are consolidating that and making it easy for consumers. And I want to wrap on sort of balancing your vision, which is crystal clear and robust and expansive with you know some of the challenges that you all are probably also feeling as part of the space in Web3. You know, we've worked with MoonPay on a couple of brand launches. What are some of the you know both opportunities and challenges you're seeing Fortune 500 companies kind of grapple with as y'all are having conversations and helping them navigate like when and how to begin activating Web3? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things to unpack here. First is I think our space is in the midst of a trust crisis. And so we have a lot of work to do to really correct the narrative around what this technology can do and how it can benefit and consumers ultimately, right? It's got to do great things for people. Otherwise, why are we here? right? Why are we here if this technology is not making your everyday life better or your experiences with brands better? And so, you know, I think we have a lot of work to do just to make it easier for people to just say, okay, here's the ROI. Here's the tangible ROI as a result of me engaging with a Web3 strategy. And so a lot of the work with the brands is, okay, like this is a new channel for you. It's not going away. There's all these people that are native to new digital experiences, especially the younger generations. And I think it's going to be really important in the same way that businesses that understood the importance of internet early, there were companies like pets.com that did not last, that were early to the trend. But it's really thinking, you know, this is going to be foundational, disruptive technology. This is the time to start experimenting and start to see how, you know, the different ROI can play off across these different experiments that you can run. And so I think a lot of the work that we're doing right now is to really get those case studies. And so when you think about the companies that were the pioneers of embracing internet technology early are the ones that are also coming back. Like it's the Nikes, it's the Starbucks that are leaning in heavily into the space. And I think they're the ones that are going to set the stage for other brands to come in. For me as an entrepreneur and especially an entrepreneur in crypto, we're in hard mode right now, especially given the macroeconomic environment, interest rates where they are. Obviously, you have a very challenging regulatory landscape. We still haven't in the United States, unfortunately, come to a conclusion of what assets are going to be commodities, what assets are going to be securities, and hopefully we get that clarity soon. So I think all of these things are challenges, but if you look at it over the long term, adoption in the space, developers that are active in the space just continue to grow. And so 
I always kind of zoom out and just think about the long term and just continue to say, okay, let's just continue to build great infrastructure. Let's continue to build great use cases with brands. And eventually we're going to get there. Amazing. Well, Ivan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was incredible to hear your insights in the last four years of building MoonPay. I still need to pin you down on what this space entails, but we're going to leave our listeners hanging for now. Thank you so much for coming. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ivan. Avery, Ivan is someone who's been in the space for a really long time, has been an entrepreneur, has helped to sort of build some of the necessary infrastructure for how we get folks into crypto amongst many other companies out there. What were your takeaways from that conversation? For one, it's interesting to hear the evolution of MoonPay. I personally wasn't familiar with MoonPay until, you know, 2021, but the fact that they've been building in the Bitcoin.com link makes a lot of sense. And I think Ivan, as the founder of the company, has such a clear vision on where they're going. It's really inspiring to see 160 countries. It's a tall order. It's a big ask. So it's great to hear his vision on this and also how their ambition is to help brands navigate this through digital content creation and infrastructure. Agreed. I think one of the things that he said in our conversation, which also was echoed when I was talking to Keith last week, was I didn't realize that there were 15 million people who have engaged with MoonPay Rails. Just for context, there's only 2.7 million wallets that have ever interacted with OpenSea. So they have 5 million KYC accounts alone. So there is an opportunity, I think, that they get to play amongst, again, a couple of others who are in the space, Coinbase being another big one, of just who are the folks that actually can help bring a lot more people into crypto? Coinbase Wallet and Coinbase MoonPay, there aren't that many that I think have built that scale that allow us to when the next bull run happens, when the next modal that gets a lot of people to come in, just make it easier for us. The concern around bots, I think, is very real. He touched on that a little bit. And the strategy around globalization, also very interesting. We've worked on a couple of projects with them. And, you know, the MoonPay team is definitely up to some really exciting stuff. Yeah, for sure. When I talk to NFT creators and artists and founders or you know, there's that amazing video we'll put in the show notes about the artist Rhett who spun up this sort of performance art as a meme coin video that was being passed around the other day. But the thing that he said, which I thought was interesting, was when he launched this coin, again, the coin was an art performance and has had a meteoric run since then. But he said the minute he spun it up, all of the liquidity got sucked up by bots. There's so much programming that smart technical people who are bad actors in our space have to sort of be first run people into anything that comes out. And I do think that that becomes a real challenge for a lot of folks, especially small players in the space. And not that I believe that everyone needs to be KYC, but I do think it is interesting where if you could say, hey, only the 5 million who have done X at least verify that they're human, right? Proof of humanity can participate in an ecosystem. It might actually be better for us in the long run. It's an interesting thing to consider, but I'd argue that we have that same challenge when it comes to like streetwear drops that get snapped up by bots or you know, highly desirable products that are limited run that also get snapped up by bots. So I don't think that that is unique only to the Web3 space, as Ivan calls it. <laughs> right. Ticketmaster has as bad, if not worse, a exactly, problem as we exactly. know. <laughs> We've seen this many times before. With that, Avery, thank you so much. So great to see you. Thank you for hosting, Sam. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We genuinely love hearing your comments, questions, thoughts, and feedback on Gen C. So ping me, Sam, and the Coindesk team anytime. And we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.